Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessings you've given us this last week, for the, the good times and the bad times, the, the ways that you have been directing us and leading us. Thank you for the blessings, for the hardships, and I pray that you would help us to see that you have given us all those things as encouragement, encouragement to follow you, encouragement that you are in control and that you know what is best for us. And I pray that you'd help us to see those truths evident in First Thessalonians this morning. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in First Thessalonians this morning. And you may have noticed that last week we did Philemon, which in the canonical order of the books comes after First, Second Thessalonians and First, Second Timothy and Titus. We did that because I goofed, and I just always put Philemon with Colossians in my mind, so I put that on the schedule afterwards. I meant to do it canonically, and that was just my mistake. So there was no hidden meaning in that. We weren't trying to group it together. I just messed up. But today we get to go back to 1 Thessalonians, which comes after Colossians in your Bibles. And this is the first of two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And like Philippi, which was also in Macedonia... Thessalonica lay on the Ignatian Way, which was the the major thoroughfare through the Roman Empire from east to west. So it was an important city, it was a major seaport, and Thessalonica and Philippi were the two main cities in Macedonia. So Paul went to these, these two cities strategically to get the gospel out to all of Macedonia through some of their main cities. Uh, When Paul left Philippi at the end of Acts 16, his next stop was Thessalonica. It says he went to, I think it's, he went to two other cities that I I won't hazard pronouncing, uh, and stayed overnight there on his way to Thessalonica. And then when he got to Thessalonica, uh, we can read about his stay there in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. So Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, as he often did. That was his custom in every city except probably Philippi, which didn't have one. And Acts tells us that on three Sabbath days, he went to the synagogue and reasoned there from the scriptures. He tried to prove that the scriptures applied to Jesus. Uh, His time there was spent explaining how the promises of the Redeemer from the Old Testament called for Christ, the Messiah, and this is the person that all the Jews placed their hope in. He was reasoning from scriptures to show that this Christ had to suffer and die And therefore, that this Christ was Jesus. That Jesus was who he claimed to be, the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Jewish people. And Paul's teaching led to Jews and Greeks and important women in the city placing their faith in Christ. But also led to really harsh opposition from other Jews who did not convert. And these Jews formed a mob and essentially forced Paul out of the city before he was done uh, ministering in Thessalonica. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were all there uh, preaching the gospel, went from Thessalonica to another city called Berea, which was also in Macedonia. And their preaching and ministry there saw many Jews in Berea come to faith until the Thessalonians got word of it and the same mob came over and kicked them out of Berea. So Thessalonica and Paul's ministry there, uh, was there was a lot of people coming to faith, and there was a lot of growing, but there was also a lot of opposition. A lot of hardship, both in kicking Paul out and in those same Jews staying in Thessalonica to oppose the work of the gospel and the church there. Well, after Paul left Berea, being forced out by the Thessalonians, 
It's going to be really hard for me to say Thessalonians and Thessalonica today, by the way. I'm just going to, I'm going to flub that many times. But Paul went to Athens afterwards, and he sent Timothy back in order to get a report from them to encourage them since he wasn't able to. And Paul was really concerned about the believers there because he wanted to teach them more. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 2.17, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He said, I couldn't get to you. So then verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So Paul actually sent, he sent Silas to Philippi, and he sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And he said, I was okay even being left alone in Athens, this massive city that has no gospel witness. I was willing to be left alone here because I really needed Timothy to, to get to you, to encourage you, and to bring word back to me. And then Paul or Timothy brought back a really encouraging report from the Thessalonians. And in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says that Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Paul was immensely encouraged by this good report from the Thessalonian church, and he wrote to the Thessalonians to let them know this. So the book of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's letter of encouragement to the church there. After Timothy has returned and brought this good report, Paul sends his own encouragement to them since he can't be there in person. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter of encouragement to the church, and it's also a letter that addresses some issues that Timothy probably reported back to him to say, hey, they need a little bit more instruction in these areas. Uh, we don't know how long Paul was in Thessalonians or Thessalonica, at least three weeks since he was there for the Sabbath, three times. But his time there was cut short. And so some of the areas that he was teaching may not have been fully fleshed out. So he kind of follows up to say, I need to remind you of these things. Um, th- this letter comes very quickly after Paul planted the church in Thessalon- Thessalonica. He planted the church in AD 50, and it's just one year later in AD 51 that he likely sent this letter. He sent it from Corinth, still on his second missionary journey. And I, I haven't studied 2 Thessalonians as much. Scott will do that next week, but I believe that's also where he writes the second letter to the Thessalonians just a little bit later. So his main goal, as I said, was to encourage them to continue following Christ. And that's really the theme and purpose of this letter. It's encouragement for the believer's walk with Christ, or encouragement to pursue sanctification. And Paul provides this encouragement in several different ways. He shares how confident and joyful he is over the Thessalonians' conversion. He reminds them that followers of Christ will face persecution, and so to keep up the good fight. He instructs them in matters that they misunderstood, and he gives truth about the future that should give them confidence in the present. So throughout the letter, he's trying to encourage them, keep going, keep following Christ, keep obeying. And because 1 Thessalonians contains this encouragement and edification, instruction, exhortation, it's also extremely practical to us. 
Because like the Thessalonians, we are believers who experience suffering and difficulties and hardships. So we need to be encouraged. And we are believers who constantly forget the truth. And so we need to be reminded of it again and again and instructed from Scripture. And we're also often fearful about the future. So we need to be reminded of what is true about what will happen in the future. So 1 Thessalonians is for us. And we find encouragement from the very first chapter. Paul uses this chapter largely to encourage the Thessalonians by expressing his confidence in their conversion and in their salvation. And he gives three reasons that they should be encouraged because of God's work in their lives. First, he says, you should be encouraged because your faith has borne fruit. If you look at verses 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, your faith has led to works. Your your faith has led to you obeying Christ, which validates your profession of faith. You are proving what you say you believe by how you live and giving evidence that God has actually worked this regeneration in your heart. He says their new hearts have led them to labor in love towards one another. Their new hope in Christ has led them to have attitudes of steadfastness in the midst of difficulty. And, oh, I missed the first one. Uh, what does it say? Your work of faith. Yeah, their faith has led them to work out their salvation. And so Paul is saying that when we see God produce fruit in our lives, we should be encouraged. It's encouraging to look at our own lives and see how God is producing fruit. It's not, you don't have to look at it in a prideful way, but you can look at how God is growing you and give glory to God and be encouraged to continue on. So second, Paul says that they should be encouraged because their conversion has encouraged others. Their conversion has actually become known to other people. In verses uh, 6 through 8, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we we need not say anything. The Thessalonians' reputation preceded them. And the word about their conversion was spreading throughout Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul didn't even have to tell people of what was going on in the church there. They already knew. And they were struck by how God was working in the church. And their example of enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel was raising eyebrows and causing people to pay attention. So Paul tells the church they should be encouraged by this because their following of Christ and the work that God was doing in them was actually encouraging other believers. So he's saying, keep pressing on. What you're doing is bearing fruit in other people's lives. But third, he said, you should be encouraged because your repentance has led to endurance. In verses 9 and 10, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul reminds the church where they had come from, worshiping idols, and where they are now, faithfully following God, the one true God. And not only following him, but waiting for him to return. He's saying, once you worshiped these worthless idols, but now your confidence is in the one true God who actually 
can follow through on what he says. So he's encouraging them to remember what they were and to see how God has produced that repentance in them that has led to steadfast endurance. He's saying, be encouraged for what God has done in you. And we can take a lot away from chapter 1 as well. As you see God sanctifying you, be encouraged. As you see God drawing you back to repentance, be encouraged. And if you see growth in your life, thank God and be encouraged for what he's doing. And then also remember that your walk with Christ is seen and noticed by others. So take stock of who sees your life and use that as an encouragement and exhortation to keep following Christ for their sake. It's true that this doesn't mean that we should stop preaching the gospel with words. We need to keep proclaiming the gospel message as it is in Scripture. We need to also remember that our lives and our examples of following Christ have a lot of weight, and they're very important. So remember that other people see your life and use that as an encouragement to keep following Christ. And I think we can also take away how encouraging it is when one believer encourages another believer like Paul has just done here. For someone to say, hey, man, I have really seen you grow in the Lord. That's a huge encouragement for other believers. And that's one of the ways that we can edify one another. That's really what Paul is doing here. He's looking at the Thessalonians and seeing that God is truly producing fruit in them and encouraging them. And we can do that with one another. We can do that with one another. If you see God growing someone, tell them. That's really encouraging. And if you know of specific areas that they're struggling in, working in, facing temptation, and you see God growing them, encourage them. This is a massive way that we can be involved in one another's lives to help each other on the race that we're all running as believers. Now, in chapter 2, Paul spends some time defending his own ministry and explaining why he and Silas and Timothy acted as they did in Thessalonica. It could have seemed like they were running away from trouble and were afraid of the mob, or it could have seemed like they did something wrong and so deserved the punishment for being kicked out of the city. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. We, we didn't do anything wrong. We preached the gospel that we always preached. And he makes it clear that he preached for God's glory, not for approval from man. And he didn't come with words of flattery or with greed. He really came as he always did. And the opposition he received wasn't because he did something wrong, but because he was preaching the true gospel. And the Jewish people rejected him, much like they rejected Christ. It's interesting to see the parallels in Thessalonica and in Jerusalem where angry Jews who were jealous of Paul formed a mob to kick him out of the city. And in Jerusalem, it ended with Christ's death. Paul was able to escape it. But it seems like the same spirit among some Jews who rejected Christ was still there, even in Thessalonica. So Paul says, no, we didn't do anything wrong. We actually did everything right, and these Jews who rejected Christ are in the wrong. And... He encourages them by saying this is the example of what it means to follow Christ, that it often brings persecution, it often brings difficulty, and that's part and parcel with what it means to be a believer. So he uses that to kind of describe his example among them, but he also goes further and says uh, that he ministered with them very gently and affectionately. He loved them and wanted to remind them of that that's the example they should follow in their own ministry. He says it wasn't out of obligation, but it was out of love. That's in verses 7 through 8. 
And then in verses 9 through 12, he says that not only was he fueled by a genuine love for the people, but he labored and toiled and worked hard. And that his ministry was characterized by holiness and blamelessness and righteousness. So he's really giving them an example of what it looks like to share the gospel and to minister among others. And he's encouraging them to follow that example as they already have. In chapter 1, he says, you are imitators of us. And now he's saying, here's a reminder of what you should continue to imitate uh, while I was there. And just like Paul pointed to his own example as something to imitate, we as believers should do the same. There are many examples of those who have gone before us that we should imitate in our own walks with Christ. We should start with Christ, who is the ultimate example. Philippians 2 encourages us to have the same humility as Christ. And Hebrews 12 calls us to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of, the, of our faith, as we run the race before us. So look to the example of Christ for encouragement in your race. And we should look to Paul, who demonstrates the right way for us to conduct ourselves among others. We should follow his example and proclaim the gospel in spite of persecution and in holiness and blamelessness and righteousness and out of love for the people that we're ministering to. And then lastly, we should look to other believers around us. You don't have to go out of this room to look for examples of those who have followed Christ faithfully and are ministering to you faithfully. So as you interact with others here at Redemption Hill, as you interact with other believers, look to them as examples. And look, remember that your own life is an example to them. So we should look to others around us, both uh, leaders like Christ and Paul who have gone before us, and the other brothers and sisters that God has equipped us with even now as we run our race. Now from <coughs> 2.17 to the end of chapter 3, Paul explains why he didn't come to Thessalonica and why he sent Timothy. So he's getting into some of the details that we looked at at the beginning of why he couldn't come, because Satan kept him from coming, likely through the opposition of the Jews, um, and why he sent Timothy instead. So, as he did this, he was even using these details of travel to encourage the believers, since he told them how joyful he was of Timothy's report to them. So, you could look at this as just kind of itineraries and explanations and things that we might skip over unless you're just interested in history. But even in these kind of minute details, Paul is really trying to encourage the church in what he says. And there's one verse in this section that really stands out more than the others, and that is chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, there are four times that Paul describes the will of God for believers. And this isn't his specific will, like who you should marry or what job you should get, what degree you should pursue, things like that. But uh, 1 Thessalonians will help you understand what God's will is for you generally, what God desires for the life of a believer. So if you're looking to answer some of those questions of specific will, like where, what job should I take, you need to approach that with biblical wisdom and insight from other parts of Scripture. But if you want to know the will of God for your life, look at 1 Thessalonians, and it will tell you very clearly. So in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul tells us that God's will for believers is that we endure affliction. If you look first at verse 2, we'll read through verse 4. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. And here it is. For you yourselves know that we are destined 
for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul says that we are destined for affliction. This is God's purpose for believers. God has appointed suffering for believers. So we shouldn't be surprised when we go through trials because God has actually uh, destined us for this. And it's part of God's plan for us. And this is actually encouraging for the believer. It's encouraging because we know that God has a plan for us and the suffering is not outside of God's control and we know that he's using it for a good purpose. As James says, we should consider joy or consider our trials as joy and rejoice when we have them because we know that God is using them to grow us, to produce steadfastness and endurance in us. So the will of God for your life is that you endure affliction. That's probably not the answer that someone wants if they're looking for what college to go to or what job to take, but that's what Scripture says. Well, we'll look at three more references to God's will, but those come in chapters 4 through 5. And in the first verse of chapter 4, Paul introduces kind of the meat of the book. Chapters 4 and 5 contain some specific issues that Paul wanted to address in the church after kind of the introductory matter of, verse, of chapters 1 through 3. And if you look at verse 1 in chapter 4, you, you can find probably the best summary of the entire message of 1 Thessalonians. This is where he kind of summarizes what his goal is in encouraging the Thessalonians to persist in their sanctification and keep following Christ. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul has made it clear that he is confident in the Thessalonians' faith. Here he encourages them to continue. He's saying, you're doing a really good job. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep it up. And this is an exhortation that we need to hear today. As we received how to walk and to please God, keep doing it. Keep continuing in that. And it's reminiscent of Colossians 2.6, that just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And the following verses get into some specific areas that Paul urges them to continue in. And these are likely areas that Timothy brought back a report to say, hey, they're doing really well. You might want to mention a couple of these things because here's some of the issues going on in the church that probably need addressing. And so there are uh, three or four main areas, and then at the very end of chapter 5, there's kind of a, a shotgun spread of a bunch of different exhortations that Paul gives. So the first specific area is in verses uh, 3 through 8 of chapter 4. And this is also where we find the second mention of God's will for believers. Verse 3 summarizes the whole section. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So what is the will of God for believers? Well, in general, it's our sanctification. God desires believers to become holy and to grow in that holiness. And specifically, Paul mentions one aspect of that sanctification is that his will for you in growing as a believer is that you abstain from sexual immorality. He's saying that for followers of Christ, we need to turn away from the sexual values of our world around us and instead embrace the sexual values of Christ, namely purity, holiness, and self-control. God's will is that sex is reserved for marriage, 
And while it is good and holy within marriage, it is sin and unholy outside of marriage. So what is the will of God for you? It's your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Next, in verses 9 through 12, Paul urges the church to continue loving one another. And he says that he doesn't mention this because they aren't loving. He says, what does it say in verse 9? He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So this is an area where he says, you're doing really well in this. I'm not trying to critique you here. You're doing really well. I want you to increase and abound more and more. And he says that one way to love one another is to not make yourself a burden to others by laziness. If you look at verses 11 and 12, <coughs> he says, And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul was addressing laziness in the church and encouraging the believers to work hard instead. He's saying, you're doing a great job of loving one another. But in this one area, some of you are actually causing other people to support you because you're not working hard enough. So why was this laziness a problem in the church? It seems kind of odd that some people in the church would just stop working and become dependent on others. But we get a hint at why this may have been going on in the next uh, section, verses 13 through 18. It seems like there was a misunderstanding about the future and about Christ's return. And some of the believers had interpreted that as, well, Jesus is coming back soon, so why should I waste my time working? I'm going to enjoy as much time I have on this earth until Christ returns. And so that led to a lifestyle of laziness that forced other people to support them. So Paul is saying, don't do this. You need to work hard. And then he addresses uh, their misconceptions about the future in verses 13 through 18. So let's read these verses. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And that's a reference to those believers who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So it seems that the Thessalonians had also misunderstood something about Christ's return. That those who died before Christ returned would miss out on the resurrection. That they wouldn't be a part of what Jesus did when he came back. So they were grieving over those who had died, saying, man, well, they missed out. This is, this is awful. Paul says... No, they haven't missed out. And in fact, when Christ returns, they actually get resurrected first, followed immediately by those believers who were still living on the earth. And ultimately, he says, this should be an encouragement to the believers. That's what verse 18 says. He says, Jesus is coming again to gather his church, whether alive or dead. So praise the Lord. That's really his point in correcting their teaching about the future. That they would be encouraged and filled with hope to continue 
uh, in the midst of persecution and trial, and even as they grieved their, the death of their loved ones. So that's really the main idea that we should glean from these verses, that we should be encouraged to pursue uh, our walk with Christ. And we should be encouraged even now as we go through suffering, almost 2,000 years later, because Jesus is coming back. We should always walk away from this truth with the attitude of hope. But we don't want to just leave this passage here seeing that it's encouraging, because this passage is important in relation to the doctrine of the rapture. This is one of the, the most prominent teachings of the doctrine of the rapture, which is uh, when believers, alive and dead, are caught up into the air to be with Jesus forever. And so we want to take a little bit of time to address uh, what this is. So at the rapture, uh, this is the point where believers receive their glorified bodies, and it's the resurrection of the dead for believers who have died before Christ's return. And the word rapture doesn't come in this in our English um, versions. You won't see it in there. Uh, the word for caught up in verse 17, when he says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. In Greek, that's the word harpazo. And the Latin translation of this translated that word with the, the Latin rapio, which is where we get the word rapture from. So the word rapture is not in our English Bibles, but the concept is, much like other doctrines like the Trinity, where the the doctrine is there even if the word is not. And the doctrine of the rapture is tricky, and it's sometimes contentious between believers. When is this coming? What is it? Uh, it's a sticking point for a lot of people. And it's often a sticking point because of the way that people interpret Scripture and their hermeneutics. It's kind of a watershed of if you interpret the Bible a certain way, the rapture has to be this. If you interpret it a different way, it has to be this. And it really comes down to how you view the relationship of Christ and the church. If you see Christ, or excuse me, Israel and the church, excuse me. If you see Israel and church as the same entity, then it really makes sense that um, they would both go through the tribulation and then be raptured at the end. If you see them as separate entities, then the church is raptured before the tribulation. Um, and so because of that, because it's a really sticking point hermeneutically in how people interpret the Bible, it's very contentious. And we should remember, first of all, that this is an important doctrine, but it's not something at the first level. There are a lot of doctrines that are first-level doctrines that are hills worth dying on, hills worth separating over. Um, the rapture is a very important doctrine, and it's important enough that we have it in our doctrinal statement, in our distinctives, what we believe. But we should remember that it is a distinctive doctrine, an important doctrine, and it's not at the level of an essential doctrine. And the essential doctrines regarding the future, this is what we have in our doctrinal statement, are that uh, Christ will return visibly, personally to earth. The, all people will be resurrected and receive, uh, come back to their bodies. Then sinners will be judged and believers will be with Christ for eternity. Those are aspects of the future that are first-level doctrines that you, should, you need to believe to be a Christian. Your view on the rapture, as well as your view on the millennial kingdom and other aspects of the future are very important doctrines that may determine what church you're in, but they're not at the level of essentials. So as we go into talking about the rapture, it's important to remember that. The other thing that's important to remember this morning is that I want to address the rapture since it's in First Thessalonians, but this isn't the time to lay out everything about it. Um, it's just six verses in all of the books, so I can't get too deep into it. And it's already past 11, so we only have a couple minutes. 
The good news is, hopefully, after our time in the New Testament in Sunday school, we're going to get into a class on doctrine where we'll have time to cover the rapture, an entire lesson. And if you're looking for something right now, J.D. has preached on the rapture. Uh, it's a sermon called Eschatology Distinctives Part 1, and I believe it's from July of 2017. I looked it up last night. So you can find that on the website to find a more expansive teaching on the rapture if you want that. We're just going to spend a couple more minutes looking at it this morning. So at Redemption Hill, we teach that Jesus will return to rapture the church alive and dead before the tribulation comes. And the difference between what this rapture is usually falls into when will the rapture occur and who will be a part of it. So at Redemption Hill, we teach a pre-tribulational view, meaning that the rapture occurs before the tribulation happens. And we hold this view in large part because of the teaching in Scripture that the church is removed from the world before this tribulation happens. Because Christ, or the Scripture says in many different places that the church does not go through this time of tribulation. This agrees with what Paul says in other places in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 verse 10 and in chapter 5 verse 9, both says that Jesus has rescued us from the coming wrath. And 5 verse 9 is very specific. It says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's specifically referring to that tribulation because it comes in the context of speaking about the day of the Lord, which refers to that judgment and wrath that comes during the time of the tribulation. So it seems like Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that the church is not destined for this coming wrath of the tribulation. And that also agrees with what he tells the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. So what we teach here is that this rapture that we read about in 1 Thessalonians occurs at the beginning of the tribulation where Jesus returns in the air, brings up the dead and living who have believed in him. They receive their resurrection body and they return to be with Christ while the tribulation occurs on earth. Then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns um, to establish his millennial kingdom and then to execute judgment on the sinners and enter into the eternal state afterwards. So that is the view that we hold here and teach. Um, there are two other major views of the rapture. One is a belief in a mid-tribulational rapture, that God allows the church to endure a portion of the tribulation, usually the first half, and that at the center, um, God raptures them out. And this view would say that the tribulation only has the wrath of God on sinners in the second half of the tribulation. It's just a time of difficulty and affliction in the first half. And they, people who hold this view would point to the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 as the center of the tribulation, and that would also be the trumpet that uh, Paul references in 1 Thessalonians 4, that Christ will return with a trumpet and bring the church. But it seems like these two trumpets are not the same, because the trumpet in Revelation is a, a sign of judgment on the earth, whereas the trumpet that blows when Christ returns is a sign of of conquering and bringing the church. It's a sign of exaltation. So that's another view, um, that the rapture occurs in the center of the tribulation. The other view is called the post-tribulational view, which is that the rapture occurs after the tribulation. That as Jesus returns, the dead in Christ are resurrected, the living in Christ meet him in the air, 
and Christ returns to conquer and establish his kingdom. Um, so many people would hold this view. One reason that we would not is that it doesn't seem to fit what Jesus says in John chapter 14, when he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So in, in that view of the rapture, Jesus comes with his church and goes to where they are on the earth. But it seems like Jesus says that when he comes to get his church, he brings them to where he is. So that's just a brief explanation of the different views of the rapture, of when it occurs. Um, a lot of it has to do with whether the church will undergo the tribulation. And I, I think what Scripture seems to say is that the church will not, and that gives the most credence to the view that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, but we have that in our distinctive section, which means that this is what we teach, and we want you to know that, but you're not forced to believe that. We welcome you and enjoy having you here if you think something differently. And we'll try to convince you otherwise, but we're glad to have you here, even if you don't agree. But that's just a short explanation. Um, you can ask JD or I later about that more. And like I said, there's resources on the website that you can look into that if you'd like to. But there's a couple more things I want to look at in 1 Thessalonians. After teaching about the rapture, Paul moves to the day of the Lord in chapter 5. And this is the time of judgment that God will bring upon the earth um, in the tribulation. So it begins with the rapture, um, and then comes the day of the Lord. And there's really two important truths that we should come away with uh, reading about the day of the Lord in these verses. First, we don't know when it will be. Uh, Paul says it will come like a thief in the night. And that makes sense because it coincides with the rapture, where we also don't know when that is coming. And the second truth is that we should live in light of the coming day of the Lord. It might be tempting to say, well, that's not going to happen to the church if we think the church is raptured before that, so I shouldn't really worry about it. But Paul says in verse 4, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Paul is saying, I believe that you're believers. I'm confident in that. So work out your faith and show that you are by living as children of the light now. Yes, if you're a believer, you're not going to experience this. So keep following Christ to prove that out. So he actually uses it as motivation to keep following Christ. And in this section, referring to the day of the Lord, we find the third reference to the will of God for us in verse uh, 9. For God has not destined us, is that same word again, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has not determined that believers face wrath, but that they would be saved. Therefore, we should encourage one another to live out our faith and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's like what Paul says in Philippians 3, talking about the resurrection from the dead. He's confident that he will be resurrected, but he says, not that I have already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus has made me his own. So Paul looks at the future hope that he has for what God is going to do in, in totally saving him. And he says, that's actually a motivation for me to follow Christ more right now. So to sum up Paul's teaching on the end times, we should both be encouraged that Jesus is coming back to raise the living and the dead. And we should be encouraged to live out the faith that we have in him now and the faith that we claim. 
And then lastly, in verses 12 through 28 of chapter 5, Paul gives various commands regarding the Christian life. The, the three sections before this in chapters 4 and 5 are kind of sniper bullets to address one specific issue. These verses are kind of a shotgun spray that hit a lot of different topics. Verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So he's saying, respect your elders. Respect the people who are teaching you and in authority. In verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. 14, he gives instructions for how to interact with many different types of people in the body. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Then in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then we have some very familiar commands in verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that's the fourth and final reference to the will of God for believers. What is the will of God? To give thanks in all circumstances. So just to sum up, Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that God's will for your life is that you endure suffering, grow in sanctification, specifically in abstaining from sexual morality, that you receive salvation rather than the wrath, and that you give thanks in all circumstances. So if you ever have the question, man, what is God's will for me in my life? There's your answer. It's right there for you. Now, after giving all of these commands, and he even gives more that I won't read, Paul kind of sums up what he's saying in verse 23. And it's really encouraging what he says there because all throughout the book, he's been giving them exhortation to keep following Christ, keep pursuing what God has done in you, keep working out your faith. And in verse 23, he says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So after giving all of this exhortation to follow Christ, Paul says, I am confident that Christ will preserve you and keep you, and he will sanctify you. And that's my prayer, that God would work this in you. So work out your salvation to the utmost of your ability, but be confident that God is faithful to work it out in you. And that's really the hope that we have today, that as we need to latch on to our own responsibility. We have confidence that it ultimately is God who will keep us to the end. So that's First Thessalonians. Thank you guys for coming.